Hi, I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Welcome to Be Epic, the podcast where we explore excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality, and what those values mean in business, education, and your life today. I have with me today Warren Stevens, who is the Chairman, President, and CEO of Stevens, Inc., Warren, thank you so much for taking time to visit with me today. I'm happy to do so, Matt, always. Thank you for having me. You know, Stevens is one of the most prestigious and well-respected firms and certainly in the state of Arkansas. So I want to I delve into that in a number of ways, um, how that reputation has been developed and, and why it has. But I wanted to start with a story. There was the story of Tyson purchasing Holly Farms. And there were quite a few firms that wanted to be in that deal. And Don Tyson eventually said, no, I just want Stevens involved in this deal. And the reason he gave was because he trusted you all. And um, I know that one of your three values as a firm is relationships. And I also, you know, there's a lot of research that supports that trust is probably the most important variable in business. Yeah. Someone can be very competent, but if you don't trust them, you're not going to want to do business with them. You know, it's, it's trust really is kind of like the primary foundation of business. So how do you build that trust and how do you live out the value of, of relationships? That was really the founders of the firm. So my uncle Whit Stevens and my father, Jack Stevens were very, very focused on relationships, one, and they realized in order to have a relationship, you had to have someone's trust. And they just conducted themselves in such a way that over a period of time, they developed a sterling reputation for uh, trustworthiness. I mean, it's not something that just pops up and and you get it. You got to earn it. When we first started, we you know, we were a little bitty municipal bond firm and, you know, my uncle took great pride in doing a great job for his clients. And, 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 you know, in our business, we have clients that buy securities from us and we have clients that sell securities to our clients. So you got to strike that balance. And we developed a reputation for fairness and, and equally, you know, representing both sides. And then my dad certainly continued that and, and moved us more into, he joined the firm in 1946, so we started in 1933. My uncle, he moved us more into the corporate finance world, uh, doing mergers and acquisitions. We'd always done our own private equity investments, but that also ramped up and has continued to this day to be a strong aspect of the firm and, and somewhat unique to, uh, it used to be very unique to our industry to have investment banks. Well, you go back long enough, it wasn't unique. That's what all investment banks did was making their own private equity investments. But there was a time there where it went away. Now it's come back. I think the big difference is it's just, you know, we don't manage any outside money doing that. Outside money we manage is for public markets and and whatnot. But we did a history of the firm right before my uncle died. We finished it, which was fortunate for us, great timing. And to have him on on film and, and his voice and whatnot. 
But he, my dad, made it clear that, and this goes hand in hand with trustworthiness, but reputation and integrity are paramount to anyone, but particularly in our in our business, but they're paramount to anyone, to any business. And in that oral history, he said, you know, no matter what happens during the day, you go to bed with your reputation intact. You can look yourself in the mirror and said you did the best you could for whoever it was you were doing it. And you got a chance the next morning to come back and be successful and continue to build. And, and that that made a huge impression on me. And, and I think we as a firm, and one of the things I'm proudest of is even though we've grown the firm in terms of number of people, a substantial amount, that still is there. And there are no gray areas when it comes to being trustworthy and integrity. They're, they're just not. I mean, this kind of world we're in where everything seems to be a little nuanced well, first of all, that's not real. It's not that nuanced. And second of all, it's not when it comes to integrity and being trustworthy. It's just it's just not. You mentioned how your father and your from the beginning really emphasized the importance of trustworthiness and building relationships. And I know that when you started with the firm in 81, they really took time to mentor you, your father and your uncle. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, they did. Particularly my dad, but I'd spent a lot of time with him over the years anyway. But you know, now in a business setting, which we really hadn't done. And then I also spent a lot of time with my uncle. He was just such a wealth of knowledge and unbelievably great stories. And you know, when we were talking about relationships, the relationship started between my uncle, who not quite, but almost could have been my grandfather in terms of age because of the age difference between my uncle and my dad. But he was friends with Don Tyson's father, Big John, the first John Tyson. And then, of course, dad and, and Don were great friends. And then over the years, we had helped Tyson grow primarily by acquisitions. And we had done almost all their debt private placements. And J.D. Simpson, who's thankfully still alive, and he did get COVID and survived, really was the person that worked on all that. So when it came time for Don to make, at that time, the biggest acquisition that he had ever done, I can see where he just said, I don't know those guys from New York. He really didn't know me, but but he knew my uncle and of course he knew my father and he knew he and he knew JD very well. So he knew how we would conduct ourselves. And you know, that was a long, hard transaction. It's probably nine months. And there were lots of twists and turns and you had to have somebody that you could trust and have confidence. And not that we were right all the time, because because we're not. But getting to spend time with my uncle in a business setting was great, but I got to spend time with my dad in social settings and business settings, and it was it was great, too. Uh, they were really different personalities. Dad, dad was a man of very few words. It's kind of like the old E.F. Hutton ad, you know, when E.F. Hutton talks or speaks, people listen. And that was a true, that was very true of my dad. Now, my uncle Witt was a more gregarious personality. But the same, you paid attention to what he said, too. What a, what a great opportunity to be able to learn from your very successful family members. But, you know, so you started um, with the company in 81. You were mentored heavily. And then by 86, you were made CEO. I think you were around 29. I was 29. And... Um, I know you'd been mentored a lot by that point, but it, did it feel like a heavy weight having all that responsibility <laughs> that quickly or was it 
Absolutely, it was a heavy weight. Honestly, I think they did it. I was too young, but I think they did it because they were both still here. And if I messed up, they could either straighten me up or straighten out the problem. They were the only two shareholders of the firm. So I wasn't going to stray too far without them knowing exactly what I was doing. The main reason I came back to Stevens was a, my finance professor at, at Wake Forest. He asked me where I saw myself in five years after I graduated from business school. I said, well, I'll probably see myself back at Stevens working on the corporate finance investment banking side. And he said, oh, you just ought to go to Stevens. He said, you'll learn so much more from your uncle and your dad than you ever will in some analyst training program. It's not, it won't even be close. And boy, was he right about that. I guess I got a PhD in finance from my uncle and my dad, really, and and the other people at Stevens, because they were all very helpful in kind of showing me around and showing me the ropes. At 29, that was too young, I will tell you. <laughs> Every professional in the firm was older than I was, sometimes by a lot. That's a pretty daunting position for a young man. I would think so. But I can also see your point, you know, by having the big picture, and working from the big big picture, the sea level, your father and your uncle were able to mentor you in a way that really honed your leadership skills and your strategic thinking and those kinds of things, which are hard to develop in a lot of entry-level positions. And they're also, and we are too now currently, but we're all very focused on succession. Most family businesses fail for a lack of having a successor the founder and the founder hangs on too long or whatever else dad in particular really didn't want that to happen so again i think he did things a little faster than he might otherwise have done or you know even though i felt like i was too young and i told him that i mean i also know my dad well enough that he wouldn't have put me in that position if he didn't think i could be successful in it. he wasn't trying to set me up for failure he thought i could do it warren your company has grown a lot since you became ceo and you've restructured and entered into new businesses and so forth. And I know that, uh, like you said, you've got your private equity arm is doing really well. Your investment banking arm is doing well. You have uh, a strong wealth management group. Yep. And so your successor, as you're developing the family to be able to, or whoever's going to be involved in running the company, do you try to get them visibility and experience in a multitude of areas, or how do you go about doing that? I do. You know, we have three children. They're all going to, they're all involved in the business. They're all going to do it. Uh, they want to do it. They enjoy it and they like it. They have just found their own way to finding different experiences within the firm and in some slightly different, or in some cases, really different areas. And I think that's uh, that's good. I mean, I really didn't have any experience other than corporate finance. I didn't know anything about money management. I didn't know anything about any of that. Now, I've come to learn a lot, but both Miles and John work for big institutional money management groups, one that's in-house at Stevens and one that's not before coming back here and doing investment banking. And now Miles, of course, is running the research uh, insurance department. We're such a bigger, more diversified firm these days. It's easier to do that. You know, when I joined the firm, we I think I was about employee number 125 or something. And now we've got right around 1400. So it's a different firm with, with a lot more capabilities and a, and a great depth of people. Warren, I remember you telling the story once to me about how you took the crisis 08, 09, 
the so-called Great Recession. And, you know, people were fearful because investment banks were shutting down. I remember it so clearly. We actually had a executive MBA program in China and our finance professor, one of our finance professors was flying over to teach a finance class the day that uh, Bear Stearns closed. And by the time he landed and was reading all the news, he's like, I don't know what to talk about, you know, other than this crisis. I think the story also points back to the trust factor of your firm. All these investment banks were closing or laying lots of people off or just having lots of trouble, but you really wound up using it to build the firm in many different dimensions. Would you mind speaking to that? Well, yeah, um, we've been growing the firm for a while, but just to put it in perspective, 0809 hits, we have about 60 professional investment bankers on the corporate finance side, very small private client. And in 08 and 09, I was early 50s and I'd wanted to grow the firm bigger, but you know, it's just a question of people. And then how much are those people going to cost you? And at great times, they're expensive, but in bad times, they're not as expensive and they really don't care about the money. They're just looking for a place that is stable, that they can go to work for and practice their craft and not worry that the firm's going to go out of business, you know, the next week or the next day or, or whatever. And of course, we've always run the balance sheet of the investment bank so conservative. That's another goal of my uncle and my dad when I would ask him is, you know, we want to be in business the next day, which I thought was kind of silly. But now having lived through 87 and, you know, 90, the early 90s and the dot-com bust and then the Great Recession, it is not silly. It is it is a damn worthy goal. You've told me that for that your father or uncle had that quote, we need to be in business for the next day. Yeah. And I'll tell you, one time I asked dad, I was thinking about maybe we ought to try something or do something else. And we sold something. We had a lot of, we had a lot of capital available and, and he turned me down. I can't remember what it was probably obviously deserved to be turned down. And I said something to him that sounded like it's going to sound pretty bad, but it's something a young person might say, to their father or even their boss. I said, well, Dad, what are we going to do with all that capital? And he sat there for a minute and he looked over at me and got a little wry smile on his face. And he said, keep it. And I thought, okay, <laughs> yeah, that's okay. We'll do that. We'll keep it. So 0809 comes around and we're not going out of business. Other people are. A lot of good people are going to be out on the street looking for a home. And I, I remember in our management meeting, I told the whole group, I said, we're going to use this as an opportunity to get people, good quality people that we haven't been able to get in our normal growth, you know, and it it happened. I mean, you know, we have from 60 investment bankers in 09, we have north of 200 in corporate finance. Now we have about 120, 125 private client brokers. Now, not all of them came in 08 and 09, but a lot of them did. You could just go on down the list, but but it also points out, and I've said this since they first started becoming public entities, I don't think investment banks make very good public companies. And if we'd have been a public company in 08 or 09, there is no way we could have done what we did in terms of growing the business. Nobody with public shareholders, public board, nobody would have done that. But because, again, you know, we got this 
very long-term view, particularly in the American business world, we're thinking about generations, you know, we could afford to do that. And, you know, you can do it when you don't care what your next quarter or even your next year's earnings are going to, are going to look like, because when you do that, you incur a lot of expense, you know, it's going to destroy your income statement for some period of time. But, you know, you can, now you can look back some, what are we, 12, 13 years at 12, 13 years after the fact and, and go, you know, it was worth it and it was absolutely the right thing to do. So really in terms of strategy for Stevens, that's one of our best moves was to take that opportunity in 08 and 09 when it looked like the world was coming to an end. And I mean, we weren't sure. It was pretty grim looking, but we weren't going out of business. And I remember, you know, saying to our employees somewhat in a, in a memo, I think that Look, balance sheet's fine. We're under no illusion that any anybody from Washington is going to ride to the rescue of little old Stevens Inc. We got to make sure we survive, and uh, you know, and we're going to come through this. I think, in a way, it gave people a lot of confidence that we're going to be fine. I'm not going to. You might lose your job, but you're not going to lose it because we downsize. In all my career at Stevens, and I know my dad and uncles, we've sold parts of our business, so we've laid people off because they were no longer needed because we didn't do that business anymore. But just to downsize because of market conditions, nah, we don't believe in that. You know, I thought I'd seen everything. Then you get a pandemic thrown into the mix. I'm so tired of trying to figure out how to navigate that thing. Uh, I know how to navigate a financial crisis pretty good, but a pandemic, different animal. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit here, Warren. You are a big proponent of capitalism. I remember you wrote an article uh, for the Wall Street Journal op-ed section a while back. I recall that it had to do with the fact that a lot of people, young people today in particular, don't really understand what's meant by capitalism. You know, they they tend to think of what we call crony capitalism as being right. capitalism. Well, a lot of which came out of 08 and 09 because they saw all the bailouts. Yeah, but you wonder how do terms get turned upside down like this? Because it has, in the colloquial sense, very different meaning now, it seems like. You know, there's a book by Russ Roberts that I really like called um, The Invisible Heart. And it's a play on words, you know, from Adam Smith's The Invisible Hand. Right. Um, You know, because Adam Smith talked about the efficiency of free markets. And this book by Russ Roberts talks about the fairness. It's a a novel, but it really does a good job of getting across the, the idea. But you were kind enough to invite me to some of your CEO summits that you used to have, and there were tremendous thinkers. I remember, uh, well, let me show you something here. I don't know if you can see that. It's a napkin with a drawing on it. And uh, yeah, Art Laffer. Yeah. So when I was younger and for the World Wide Web, when I would get the Wall Street Journal, I turned to the last page of the of the first section of op-ed pieces, and I always wanted to see if Art Laffer had written anything. If he had, I read it. That would be right. if it didn't. I'd go back to the first page. Uh, that's how much I enjoyed him. But I remembered a story once. I believe it was he explained this concept of the Laffer curve to Ronald Reagan when Ronald was at a very uh, early stage. I don't remember. I don't think he was president yet, but I could be wrong. Uh, he might have been governor of California. Matt. Yeah, that's right. 
But you had people like him speaking, but I was at this luncheon that you had put on, you know, it was part of the conference, but Art Laffer was speaking. And I thought, I can't believe I'm fortunate enough to be here with all these people. And after the lunch, everyone walked away, but not me. <laughs> I, I picked up my napkin and I started walk, walking towards him and no one else was around him. And he said, I know what you want. And so uh, those of you listening, you couldn't see what I did, but um, I have a napkin that I had framed and um, Art Laffer drew the Laffer curve and he wrote a little note on it. But but he he's such an upbeat, positive person. He is. And in most ways, I will tell you, I think people who are capitalists are optimistic. A lot of people today, they, they take things for granted. They don't understand what it takes to have simple things that we take for granted, like a huge array of food in your grocery store and drinks of all shapes, of all kinds, you know, energy drinks and just bottled water. And well, all of that is driven by the capitalist system and the supply and demand curve. There's hundreds of people that work every day to give people all these options. And increasingly, there are healthy options and choices. I always think of the evolution of Northwest Arkansas in my lifetime as one of the great examples of capitalism. The first time I ever went to Fayetteville was in 1969 for the Arkansas-Texas, the big shootout, which I'm not over yet, and I guess I'll never get over since I'm 64 now. But it was pretty bleak. The university was was not much. My God, the football stadium, football stadium wasn't much bigger than than Quigley Stadium, where the Central High plays. What became Barnhill Arena was Barnhill Fieldhouse, but you could barely get a television signal. Fast forward to today, and Northwest Arkansas is one of the most desirable places to live in in the country, and indeed maybe even in the world. And it's been driven by the growth started with Walmart for sure. They're still a big driver, but Tyson and J.B. Hunt, which also spilled over to the University of Arkansas, and the amount of wealth that was generated that people then gave to support churches and causes and whatever they wanted to do. So it transformed Northwest Arkansas in a fast period of time, really. I mean, 50 years is nothing to go from a hard scrabble, poor mountainous area to what it is today. But at the same time, the eastern part of the state, which has had seen massive transfer payments over the same 50 year period, has continued to deteriorate, you know, to the point that, I mean, a lot of us shake our shake our heads, scratch our head and say, what is the solution there? You know, I, and I don't think anybody's really got one. And it's, it's probably never going to be like Northwest Arkansas, but you're seeing a little bit of that in Northeast Arkansas. You've got some very successful companies here in uh, Central Arkansas. And the Walmarts and the Tysons and the Hunts, come, don't, they don't come along very often. Now, to have all three of them, you know, headquartered in such a small area of such a small state is extremely rare. I can't think of a situation where that happened ever. It's a wonderful thing to see, and it's, you know, we admire all the great success of all those companies and, in, and indeed the area. Heck, we're, we're proud of it. And I know you all have been a part of it. You were engaged in the 
IPO for Walmart and JB Hunt. We were indeed. I actually used the Walmart IPO to talk to my regulators about how they basically destroyed the ability of such small companies to access the public markets because Walmart raised less than $5 million in 1970 and they had about 32 or $33 million in sales. And you couldn't do that today for a company that, you know, was 10 times bigger than that, which is a shame because Walmart and Tyson and Hunt, not only have they had enormous success, but they've generated enormous amounts of wealth for their shareholders. But I mean, I know very, very successful families, say from Eastern Arkansas, who are farmers, but they bought Walmart in the 70s, even in the 80s, and kept it. And that's the reason, that's the reason they're such successful farming families, really, is they got other, they got other businesses. The first time I met you, you took me to your father's office, which is still in the building. And I remember seeing on the bookshelf the Walmart prospectus from their IPO. Yeah. I think 71, I believe. 70, I think, but anyway, it could be 71. And it was so small. 26 pages. (laughs) So things have changed a lot in terms of... uh, I don't know what the size, how much of the size today is driven by regulations and laws, but I would imagine it's a lot. Oh, it's it's 100% driven by, by regulation. I've read the Walmart IPO, 26 pages. Who couldn't? I read that in 30 minutes, maybe a little longer. But, you know, everything I needed to know about Walmart was in those pages. There was one thing left out that I needed to make an informed decision about. And today it'd be hundreds, if not even a thousand pages. And nobody's going to read that. So I I don't know what we were trying to achieve in the regulatory world, but it's like we achieved the opposite. Indeed. So what would you say to young people who might be listening to this uh, about capitalism? And obviously there's been a lot of marketing that has degraded the, the term, but how would you encourage them to look into this further? Or would you? Well, I definitely would. First of all, I think you need to understand, young people need to understand the difference between state-run economies and free market economies, which is, of course, what capitalism is, with appropriate guardrails and regulations. And I'm not at all saying we shouldn't have those because I think we should and we do. But the state controlling the allocation of capital and resources versus individuals and private organizations, there's just no comparison as to what system benefits its its citizens better. There doesn't seem to be much of a focus on the lack of just material goods in places like Venezuela and Cuba, which are very state controlled, but they're very real. And I say all the time when I was growing up, we had the Soviet Union and the Eastern Eastern European communist countries. And the difference between the Eastern European countries and the Western countries was so stark. I mean, I went from West Berlin into East Berlin. The difference was night and day. And, you know, the poor people of North Korea just keep suffering and starving. That's a little bit different. They got a kind of crazy person running the show. But the Chinese have done an interesting thing in introducing a lot of capitalist 
theories and principles into their economy, but it doesn't, you know, the freedoms don't apply to the citizens. And ultimately, that's going to come back and really hurt them. Now, ultimately, it could be a heck of a long time. But, you know, it's the same thing that happened to the Soviet Union and, and those countries is once people get a taste of personal freedom, they don't want to live under anything else. And, you know, capitalism has provided so many wonderful things that make everybody's lives so much better and easier. So to young people, I just say, I want you to start with the premises. You're going to choose the system that allows the most individual freedom. That's the system you're going to want to exist in because it's the one they already exist in. They just take it for granted. You're going to wind up at capitalism and free markets every time. I sure don't want people telling me what to do or where to go or what I can do and what I can't do. I, one day I was at the golf course with my oldest son, Miles, and we made a turn and he got one of those uh, crustables, you know, those peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that are in the packages. We got over on the 10th tee and he eaten about half of it and he looked at it and he said, this may be the best example of capitalism I've ever seen. I mean, can you imagine a state-run economy thinking we need to have individually packaged strawberry and great peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and it would be a hit? And I went, no, and that's a really good point. So, you know, it's a little thing like like that to, to huge things, like everybody uh, lives on their phone. I mean, you, you know, your phone is your computer now. It does everything. The mobile phone started as just a phone and it was the size of a pretty large shoe. It cost a lot of money and now it fits in your pocket. And hell, I hadn't quite figured out how to work it all, but it's on, you know, it's on your wrist. They say I can talk on that. I hadn't figured out how to do that, but I'm going to figure that out because I used to read Dick Tracy when I was a kid and he does what he did. <laughs> you got to understand the relative value of the two systems. And I've never seen a state-run economy perform well for an extended period of time ever. And people say, oh, well, you know, look at Sweden. And so I did. I looked at Sweden and uh, they have an extremely generous welfare state, but they're a capitalist Absolutely. system. They actually went too far to the state control of everything. They had to bring it back and say, no, this, this, this isn't working out too good. You know, and, and, and I mentioned Northwest Arkansas, but, you know, we're one of the great beneficiaries, too. Um, our family, you know, my uncle had a sixth or an eighth grade education. My dad was the first one to go to school to think they could uh, achieve what they achieved with limited financial resources is just remarkable. And, and, the, and, the, and the fact is, in any other system in the world, my uncle would never have been given a chance. But in this country, you get a chance. You get a chance to, to do what it is you want to do. And if you can, if you can provide good and, goods and services that people are willing to pay for, you're going to do really well. That doesn't mean you're going to, everybody's going to become Sam Walton, but you can, you can do, you can do really well. And one thing I want to say about Sam Walton, and my dad said this to me about him back when for a while, he was the wealthiest man in the United States. And my dad looked at me and he said, you know, Sam doesn't care a bit about being the wealthiest man in the United States. And that wasn't his goal. But his goal was to be the best retailer he could possibly be. And he has never given up on that. He did pretty well. He knew what he was doing. <laughs> and, and they still do. Uh, they've started doing a lot better vis-a-vis -vis the Internet uh, competition with Amazon. But I used to tell people all the time that, I mean, Amazon's great. They, you know, we order stuff from Amazon all the time. But, you know, Walmart's got every asset that Amazon's out there building. Like somebody said to me, he said, golly, Amazon's building 
a million square foot distribution center down in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And they say, you ever heard anything like that? I said, yeah, Walmart's had that since the seventies. What are you talking about? They're figuring it out. They work hard and they, they, they know they're in a, they're in a tough fight, but that's capitalism, right? I mean, Walmart changed the landscape of retail. Amazon's changing the landscape of retail. You either get with the program or, you know, you lose. Competition uh, drives uh, improvement. There's no question. Exactly. Exactly. Competition drives improvement. Well, Warren, this has been delightful. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Matt. Come see us. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Be Epic podcast from the Walton College. You can find us on Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or look for us wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can find current and past episodes by searching Be Epic Podcast, one word, that's B-E-E-P-I-C podcast, and now Be Epic.